Hello, and welcome to Two Hearts, a New Who podcast. My name is James. And I'm Callum. And this is the only podcast where it's raining on the moon. And every week here on Two Hearts, we take a look at another episode from the Doctor Who revival. And this week, we are tackling the very first two episodes of season three, introducing Miss Martha Jones, Smith and Jones, and the Shakespeare Code. But first of all, how are you, James? I'm not doing too bad today. Uh, at the time of recording this, it is the last day of Trump's presidency, so we've definitely got that to celebrate and be happy about. We've got a brand new season of Doctor Who to, to sort of uh, talk about and, and get into. It's just, it's it's really, it's all happening for us, you know? Um, yeah. What about you? Um, you know what? I've completely forgotten about the Trump presidency thing. I know that in America, it will still, like, there's that time delay thing. Um, you know, how time works. Um, but yes, I completely forgot about that. It's also a special day for, uh, well, a special series of days for a couple of reasons. One, because, uh, today is, uh, the 20th of January, uh, AKA Tom Baker's birthday. And I think he's 87 today. Um, so happy birthday, Mr. Tom Baker. Yeah, happy birthday, Tom Baker. My favourite classic doctor. I think a lot of people's favourite classic doctor. Um, I just hope that uh, someday soon, Big Finish lets him rest. Yes, I think he's aching for it by this point. Um, Just wants to shuffle off that mortal coil. But... Oh my God. (laughs) He... (laughs) It's true. I'm not even... I'm not even making it up. Every single interview he gives, he talks about how much he just wants to die. It's a very British thing to do. I understand completely. Oh, um, what a vibe. What a vibe, what, Mr. What Baker. a vibe. <laughs> <laughs> um, but somebody else had a very important birthday also recently, and that somebody was me. And I turned 27 on the 19th. So, hooray. Yes. Happy birthday, co-host Callum. Thank you. We weren't able to spend it together, unfortunately, because um, I'm now back in crummy old Sydney. But we're making the best of the situation. Uh, yeah, by recording the day after we were meant to record, because I'm kind enough to have uh, let us move the <laughs> recording date so Callum could go and celebrate his his birthday. And uh, yeah. Celebrate my birthday in a COVID safe way. My generosity is unmatched. Uh, <laughs> I have no comment on that front. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you, James, for letting me take the day off. It is much appreciated. Not that this sets up the, some kind of boss dynamic. And in uh, Doctor yeah. Who's this week. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, we don't have a huge amount of Doctor Who news to talk about this week. Um, it has been uh, just, just a pretty light couple of weeks since we had that sort of like big influx of information come out about the new companion and whatnot. Um the only thing that I was like mildly amused by is that the ever wonderful Carrie Mulligan did an interview while she was promoting Promising Young Woman, a very challenging film that uh, CJ uh, Callum and I both recommend wholeheartedly. Um, she was asked about, you know, would she ever consider returning to Doctor Who? And she very pointedly said, oh yes, I would love to return to Sally Sparrow, which is not the same thing as returning to Doctor Who. Um, and yeah. I just found that very amusing. I think she literally said like something like, Yes, I'd love to revisit Sally Sparrow one day, but not... And then just trailed off and was like, but I love Sally Sparrow. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, again, an eternal mood. Everyone loves Sally Sparrow. 
bit iffy on the show. Um, yeah, so look, that, that was a whole thing. And uh, I believe Noel Clark also did an interview where, uh, you know, he was asked about the, for some reason, the possibility of like him returning as the Doctor. And um, yeah, sure. Okay. Like, yeah, I have no thoughts on this. <laughs> No, but you know, look, if you Google Doctor Who, it's in the news and we do strive to give you pretty consistent coverage of Doctor Who news two weeks late every time here on the show. <laughs> um, so we're, we're going to keep that up into the new year and we're just going to just going to power ahead. Um, today we are talking about two episodes, the first two from season three, Smith and Jones and the Shakespeare Code. So without further ado, let us... Um, uh, Romeo and Juliet. I couldn't think of a Shakespeare quote. Martha, have you seen the rain? Why is everyone fussing about rain? The rain is going up. We're on the moon. You might die. You might not. Good. Aliens. Real proper aliens. Dune. Find the non-humana execute. What are you? What are you? Smith and Jones is the first episode from season three of the Doctor Who revival. It is directed by Charlie Palmer and written by our it's just benevolent showrunner Russell T Davies. Um, as always, we're going to consult with IMDb first, and I will say I am shocked at how concise this plot description is. When the hospital she works at is transported to the moon, medical student Martha Jones joins forces with the Doctor to hunt down an alien fugitive before the oxygen runs out. Not bad. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the, the, the novelty of reading these out has definitely worn off because they've just been, I think people like, maybe somebody's been listening to our podcast and been like, fuck, we need to really sort out these IMDb plot descriptions. Cause uh, yeah, it's like the Simpsons joke where it's like, but mom, you don't know piano. I've just got to stay one lesson ahead of the student. <laughs> like, <laughs> is, is the vibe I'm getting from these IMDb descriptions. Um, but yeah, look, that, that's a that's a pretty good description. Uh, as always, though, we're going to give you guys a uh, in case you know you haven't seen it, you need a refresher on the on the episode. We're going to give you a quick rundown now. Um, so yeah, we're looking at a pretty basic uh, plot for this one, but a satisfying one. Uh, this is our introduction story to Martha Jones, who is, as IMDb has correctly pointed out, a medical student working in a hospital in London. Um, when she goes to work one day, uh, she basically finds David Tennant's doctor uh, in a hospital bed, and the two have like a little bit of banter and whatnot. Um, and then the hospital is uh, transported to the moon by uh, my new favorite alien in the show, mm-hmm. apparently, uh, the Jadoon. The Jadoon are essentially space cops, and they have lifted the hospital out of Earth and put it onto the moon in an attempt to track down a uh, like shape shifting ish fugitive alien that is hiding out in the hospital under the guise of this like doting old lady. Uh, she is basically going around the hospital and draining blood from people through a straw and she does this from humans so that she can like assimilate and become a human so that when the Jadoon scan her she shows up as human. Um, hijinks ensue, there's a lot of running around the hospital, um, 
the doctor eventually confronts the old lady. She thinks she gets the upper hand on him and drains his blood, thereby uh, changing her genetic code to represent an alien again. The Jadoon figure this out. They try to arrest her, end up killing her in the process, but not before she rigs an MRI machine to become a nuke of some sort that'll take out half the Earth. Uh, the doctor obviously stops this explosion from happening. The Jadoon put the hospital back on Earth. Martha tries to sort of go back to her humdrum life with, she's got this big family and there's like a big hubbub about the, her brother's birthday party that's happening that night. And, um, you know, she ultimately finds that while she does obviously love her family, uh, a life of traveling with the doctor is uh, too interesting an opportunity to pass up. And the two of them jet off into space and time together. We're going to be real lean with those this season because <laughs> we're bad at them and we're tired of doing them. So <laughs> I don't know if we're bad at them necessarily. I think I have bad impulses when it comes to voices. Yes, you do. You do want to act out a lot of the roles. Um, but anyway, that is Smith and Jones basically in a nutshell. And as always, we're going to kick things off. Callum, what is your overall sort of impressions, vibes from Smith and Jones? Do you know what? Um, I love it. <laughs> uh, I love it. I think it's a great opener. I think it's um, just a really fresh, bold episode that doesn't necess- It doesn't do... This is the thing about it. It doesn't do anything different or unusual or... Um, it's not a left out of field kind of Doctor Who episode. It's It follows a very standard kind of chase and run mystery not it's not even a mystery just a standard chasing action orientated doctor who episode but um you know there's just so many pluses going for this episode the the character of martha obviously being introduced the um the the design in general of the jadoon but also just um the color skate that the uh, is used in this episode and the very kind of bold visuals um the bold ideas at the heart with the hospital uh, and the moon and the Jadoon and the Plasmavore. Um, and it just has this kind of energy and pace that does not let up through the whole thing. And I think it's just so vital for a season opener. Um, I think, yeah, season three hits the ground running exceptionally well with this episode. What do you think? <clears throat> yeah, I pretty much agree with that. I think that this ties off uh, nicely from The Runaway Bride, you know, another episode which is quite high-paced and uh, sort of fast-paced rather and, and just gets things going on like the right foot with the sort of uh, post-Rose adventures, um, which... We're going to have to get into that across this season, obviously. Um, I don't necessarily want to classify this season as post-Rose, but the show goes out of its way to be like, oh, Rose is in here. Um, but we'll get to that. Mm. In a general sense, though, I did think it's a, it's a vibrant episode. It's a lot of fun. As I said in the uh, episode description, like I think the Jadoon are genuinely phenomenal uh, aliens. They're really well designed. Um, they have a great screen presence. They should be used more, in my opinion. Um, Martha, like Freema Adjaman's first performance is, I think, as organic as you could probably get from a, a companion slipping into the role like this. Um, she is a wonderful contrast with Rose when we first started off that adventure in season one. Um, yeah, like it's just it's just like a really, really solid episode of Doctor Who. And I know that like occasionally we we say that as a means of describing something that is like pretty good, but we don't ultimately love. Um, I, I think this is a, a very good episode. It's just also you know, it, it, I won't say it's going through the motions, but like you said, it's it's very textbook. Um, but because of the cleverness of some of the sci-fi concepts and Martha herself, um, it, the whole thing just gets elevated quite nicely. So, yeah, I feel like it would be a good place to start with if you talked about some of the things, some of the issues that you have 
with this episode, especially around Martha Jones. Yeah. So, yeah, actually, that, that that's a reasonable point. We probably should front load the uh, discussion of season three with, with a good chat about Martha because... Um, Martha has such a interesting reputation in fandom um, and in the way that we talk about Doctor Who. Uh, there is over time developed this like I'm not going to say consensus, um, but definitely a a popular opinion that the show it doesn't do her any favors by constantly positioning her as the rebound from Rose, um, and it's unfortunately something that you see a lot with. Um, uh, black representation and people of color representation in in TV shows is that you have one of these new characters who comes in who often ends up inadvertently or you know explicitly taking the place of a very popular white woman um, and a lot of that gets projected onto the character um, and that's really unfortunate uh, and I think it's worth putting that up front with this conversation because you know like ultimately we are still just two white dudes and so we don't get to speak with any sort of authority on this but we also want to make sure that like we're aware of both how important Martha is historically as a character and also the um like very obvious racial undertones of the negativity that she receives sometimes um in terms of you know whether you want to call it criticism or not um it it's just it's an unfortunate part of the conversation that I, I think is worth bringing up. It is. It's, um, and I'm really glad that you have because, um, the historical and social context of these episodes is not something that we have immediate access to. Um, you know, I was 13 when these episodes went out, so, you know, I was only vaguely aware of the world around me. Um, um, and we obviously are looking at everything with a 2020, 2021 lens. Um... So, yeah, I, I guess the only thing I would add to that is just to go off of what you're saying, James, that Martha is a, a, an incredibly important character in the in the history of Doctor Who because they are the first full-time black companion. Um, and I don't want any of our discussions about her through, this, through our discussions of season three um, to detract from, A, the importance of her character, but also, B... Uh, how much we love and respect Freema Adjaman and this character in particular. And it's because of those reasons that we might find room to criticise the way in which she is treated as a character. Yeah, exactly right. Because it's like, like like you said, Freema Adjaman um, is just an absolute fucking hero for putting up with what she probably had to put up with because of the inevitable, oh, you're not Rose kind of pushback that the character got. Um, and when we criticise, because look, I mean, look, it's no secret that we're like a, a pretty openly critical show. Um, and so we're going to have conversations about Martha, about the stuff that works with Martha, because there's a fuckload of it. She is genuinely fantastic. But there is also some other stuff that doesn't work with Martha. And it's not Prima Adjaman's fault. It's not the fault of it being the first black companion. It's no. the fault of the white men who write her. Um, it's... It's unfortunate that that diversity in front of the camera doesn't always reflect diversity behind the camera. And the two things need to be in tandem. Otherwise, you do end up with um, a lot of missteps and mistakes, uh, whether, it, you know, and just... It's an uncomfortable thing to talk about, as I said, because especially because we are just two white dudes, you know what I mean? Like, we're not, we're not going to come in here and, like, try to lecture you on race politics and whatnot. But um, 
we will also want to be pretty openly like allies of, of, of a lot of these issues and whatnot. And so, yeah, like we establishing off the bat that like, we both genuinely love Martha as a baseline character. Um, and I think where they take her and the choices they make with her, especially by the end of the season, is when we're going to start getting into some uh, wobbly territory, I- I'll say. And there yeah. are signifiers of that in this episode already. And it, and it just bumps me up. So while you were talking just then, I was just making some notes up from just from my own memory about the differences between Martha and Rose, because I just want to like preface our discussions of her um, with a few just like surface level differences so that we, we we can appreciate the fact that they are not meant to be the same character. Um, you know, whereas Rose was white, young, 19 years old, uh, working class and, you know, didn't have much of an education. Martha is uh, older, probably mid to late 20s. Um, she's black. She's middle class because there's talk of, you know, the inheritance and the big extended family. And they're all like they very well, not well to do, but they're very, they're middle class. Mm. She's knowledgeable. She's a medical student. She's clever. She's, um, you know, in for the, she's also in for it is the other thing I would say. Rose is very kind of, she, um, not standoffish, but she, um, in that first episode, you know, does get taken aback by things. But whereas Martha just kind of is just jumps into it and is just immediately deducing things. Um, mm. she, yeah. So there, there, there are definite differences between the two characters and I don't think it does as well to sort of be like, she's Rose 2.0 because I, I can see what they're doing here with her character. Um, setting her up as be to be very, very different from Rose, at least in, in conception. Um, but having said that she is unfortunately taken on a ride where, and it's almost as if you can, it's the process of a character from the real world becoming a doctor who character in this episode where they start off as just an average person and then get, knocked and bent into (laughs) the shape of the doctor's companion ergo becoming this what we see by the end of the episode um and you had a very salient point james when you said that the episode hinges on a very particular moment uh yeah i would say that uh about halfway through the episode um there is this moment where the doctor, because like I said in the episode description, you know, it's all about like uh, DNA being sort of like assimilated by this alien creature. Um, the doctor's DNA obviously is going to register as alien to the space cops that have burst into the hospital and they're scanning everybody and whatnot. And so part of this like big ruse is um, he's like, oh, I have to like put some of my DNA onto Martha somehow so that when the cops scan her, it like buys me some time or, or some shit like that. Um, and much like Christopher Eccleston kissing Rose to remove the time vortex from her, the only way that they could conceivably get this done in this episode is to have him lay a massive kiss on Martha and her characterization and her entire arc just 
pivots in that moment. Um, and, and I put this in my notes because I realize now that we're heading into like another season where I'm going to be quite critical of the concept of romance in Doctor Who. And I want to be like 100% clear. I love romance stories. I like unrequited love. I like pining. I like requited love. I like, I'm, I'm very into all of that. The, the concepts themselves don't bother me. What does bother me? And I'm starting to see this as more of a clear pattern now is that the way Russell T Davies writes romances for the doctor is that, well, one, that they're always just aggressively heteronormative. Um, and two, they are used in such a way to elevate the doctor to this kind of like untouchable, amazing man, God status and to box the women into the companion role in a, a very aggressive way. And so the first half of the episode, you've got this like cunning, clever, quick on her feet, Martha, who is, you know, not hypercritical of the doctor, but she is, she doesn't trust him straight away. There, there's, there's some thought behind her interactions with him. And the moment that he kisses her, the, the doe eyes come out and she just becomes what she becomes for the rest of the season, which is, oh, doctor. And it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart as well because it, because there are two Marthas present throughout the season. One that is the character that we see here and then one that when the moment requires her to be is simp- like, you know, ooh, why doesn't he love me? And ooh, ooh, ooh. Um, <laughs> And you, you can you can sort of rationalize it in your head as Martha being like hiding that stuff and, and keeping her two the two sides of herself very, very separate. Um, but I don't want to give too much credit to uh, the writers necessarily on that front. Um, this is all speculation on our part. Um, I, I think you're. I think you're extremely right to say that um, it's aggressively heterosexual um, and it's frustrating. It's frustrating just, it's frustrating just from like sheer terms of um, creativity because like, why would you follow up a love story with another different, but still a lo- another love story? And it's, yeah. it, 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 yeah, it's, it's, it's not, it's just not good. Um, and it also <laughs> makes me think about, uh, and this is moving further into the future, but with the introduction, the reintroduction of Donna Noble in season four, which where he makes a very uh, obvious point about, I just want a friend. You can sort of read that as the writers, maybe course correcting from this season and thinking we got it wrong. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. Obviously, this is all speculation again, um, but uh, yeah, I think that the issues that we're going to be talking about are not, they're not unknown to the wider Doctor Who community, um, but they may not also be unknown to the writers themselves. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. And like, you know, you said before about how we don't want to be unfair and sort of claim that Martha is just Rose 2.0. Um and I think that, like like we said, her, her base characterization isn't that. They are fundamentally very different characters who should behave differently with the Doctor. Mm. And the romance stuff 
makes her Rose 2.0 um, because it's that same pining, it's that same unrequitedness, except only this time there's an extra layer of cruelty because mm. he's already just gone through this with Rose. And so, of course, he's not going to go through it again with somebody else. And so instead of with Rose where you get like little hints that maybe there's some sort of reciprocation there, you just get cold, shut down, no, this isn't what I want from you, Martha, to the point where it ultimately defines her time in in the TARDIS so much that she leaves because of it. And that's obviously we're, we're getting quite ahead of ourselves there. Um, I will say to your point about the, the stuff with Donna being, you know, oh, I just want a friend in that season. Um, I found it interesting because it, it, it really felt like Donna's season, because I've, I've watched it now, um, <laughs> felt like the organic follow-up to the runaway bride um because he is definitively in a better place about his feelings about what happened with rose um whereas in the runaway bride you know like it starts with him you know having flashbacks to rose uh being quite like forlorn and, and sad about everything and then like i keep thinking about that scene during the car chase where donna's like well you know what about her what happened to her and he has this like it, it almost feels like he has a breakthrough and it's like she's very much alive like i mm. can't be with her but i know she is at least safe and happy and alive and potentially thriving right mm. and so to go from that doctor back to this doctor who is just like oh but you're not Rose. It's just, it unfairly straddles Martha with so much baggage that's not Martha's baggage. Um, And again, I I just think it drags her down ultimately. And I know that, you know, we've spent like a good 15 minutes now just kind of like talking about Martha specifically and just overall impressions of the character. And I think it's because it's important to establish a tone about how we're going to move forward with this. I do want to say in a general sense in this episode, other than these like specific moments that I can see the, the character arc, you know, starting in the, in the wrong direction, she is genuinely fantastic here. Uh, she is just, just quickly, because you just reminded me of something um, with your point about Donna. Um, we touched on the fact that the runaway bride um, really sets up a healing for the doctor and mm. uh, to the point where, by the time we get to Smith and Jones, he should be over it. Is <laughs> the only way I can put it. And so it is frustrating to sort of see this arrested development of his character, of yeah. the Doctor's character through this season, because it just it shouldn't have just shouldn't have happened, both on screen and off. Anyway, I think obviously we're getting I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, Martha Jones, fucking brilliant. Can I just say? I adore. Um, I've always adored Martha. I think I have a thing for underdogs anyway. So Martha being the underdog of the Doctor Who companions in general, um, I'm just going to root for her straight away. But um, I think she just gets a really good story to jump off with. It's like she just gets to run the complete gamut of um, emotions, scenes. Um, She's just got this kind of breathless... um, Joy de vivre, I guess I'd say, at um, at traveling in time, and I think that's another reason why I just love watching this episode so much. It's because we lost a lot of that in season two. Not to say that Rose didn't enjoy traveling in time during that period, but it was always at this like kind of remove and like, oh, I can enjoy it, but you you can't. Um, that clickiness that we talked about, um, mm. and so it's nice to see it here again in, in Freeman Adjaman's performance of somebody who's just like experiencing it again for the first time. 
Um, I'll talk more about that, I think, with Smith with Shakespeare Code. But, um, yeah, Martha, two thumbs mm. up. <laughs> yeah, two big two big thumbs up. Uh, Freema Adjaman delivers a great performance. Like, she's just inherently super charming. Um, and the way Martha's written for the first half of this episode is just so quick um there's just so many different like and i put all of this in my notes because there were so many different specific instances where um you know you would get a very organic demonstration of her wits just through her actions so, you know so like it opens with her like managing her family like she's clearly the one that they're all calling to uh organize this party thing tonight and talk about like all the dramas and the woes that could potentially happen and she's there literally like doing that thing of like all right well if you arrive at 8 30 we can tell him to arrive at 9 30 by that time mum will be too tired and she'll have left the party by 9 15 you know like it's that it's it's organizational skills basically i guess is what i'm driving at and then when the the hospital gets like whipped up to the moon um She's the first one that's like, well, hang on, like these windows aren't exactly sealed. If we were going to suffocate because we're on the moon, it would have happened already. There's got to be something else out going on out here. Um, and then I think you and I is like maybe our favorite Martha moment in this episode is that um, her and the doctor um, step out onto a balcony to kind of like establish how far the, the oxygen bubble extends or, or something like that. Um, and, you know, she's just like staring at the earth, like wide eyed wonder. And I think like her first line out there is like, I've got a party to night like it's just such a grounded sweet way of doing this whole thing and then they're doing the whole hey who are you i'm martha martha jones you know i'll be a doctor one day hopefully and who are you and he's like oh, i'm just the doctor she's like well as far as i'm concerned you've got to earn that title and that is it's just so good it, it's that mm. it's what i like about clara as well it's a companion who doesn't just automatically give over to the like the impressive vibe of the doctor it's like i can tell that you're quite intelligent and you're obviously an alien you got some shit going on but that doesn't mean i have to inherently respect you yeah exactly it's the it's the time lord syndrome and that this with this doctor in particular is the kind of demand for respect purely because they are who they are like they're mm-hmm. aware that they're the, the main actor in the in a television show um and so, yeah, like those moments, I, I, yeah, they set up something really good with Martha and it's a shame, again, that the show doesn't follow through to a satisfying extent with regards to that yeah. character trait. Because it does because happen. We also don't want to Martha- make it, yeah, exactly. We don't want to make it sound as if, like, nothing goes right with Martha. There's a lot of really good stuff with Martha throughout the entire season that does build on a lot of these characterization uh, sort of points and whatnot. Um, and, I mean, I don't know, for me personally, it doesn't fully come to the climax of the problems until the last episode. Uh, so, we've we got a little while to get there. Um, but... Yeah, look, we're, we're in for an interesting ride with Martha and starting her off on such a strong first foot is, it is just very exciting. Um, truly. And it doesn't hurt that also Freema Adjaman gets one of the best looking episodes we've had in a while to mm. start her season, her time on Doctor Who off on. Um, the CGI, the visuals in this episode are uh, pretty damn good, I've got to tell you. And I just thought, just then, to myself, oh my god, we finally get uh, a good opening episode set on a hospital. Because the last time they tried this, it was bad. Which one was that? New Earth. Oh. Oh, New Earth. 
<laughs> oh god yeah look fair <laughs> fair point fair point um yeah i think the hospital setting is used quite well here um because it obviously it backs up martha's character quite nicely um the on the topic of how good this episode looks um i do want to talk about my boys the jadoon because hmm. um <laughs> it's okay so when i first watched this episode um uh, it was obviously, you know, after series uh, 12 had wrapped up and we'd started the podcast and whatnot, and I was watching ahead a little bit, and I remember I, I texted CJ, I was like, oh shit, these are doing fucking, like, they're just, they're rule, they're great, they're, they're fantastic, I can't wait to see more of them, <laughs> and he was like, well, I mean, you won't see them really again until series 13, which you just watched, it's like, ah, fuck. <laughs> yeah, they make um, one appearance in season four. Um, which is cute, but they're not even remotely the central anything in that episode. Yeah, they do, they do look really good and they're a better example of, um, Russell's, I shouldn't say Russell, I don't know him, uh, RTD's, (laughs) um, proclivity to turn, uh, (laughs) earth animals into aliens. I mean, they are just rhinos. Yeah. I never thought about that. But yeah, like for those of you who don't know, uh, a Jadoon is basically like a big, thick man body in like a cool leather kind of like biker armor outfit. But instead of having a human head, they've got these massive fucking rhino heads. And for some reason they speak like, do, ro, show, mo, go. <laughs> and they're just, they're so basic, but they, they work so well. And there's so many little details in the, the physical props that they built for these things. Like they genuinely look fan fucking tastic. Mm. Um, and so that definitely played a, a pretty big role in me thinking like, oh, these guys are obviously going to go on to be like a defining, you know, antagonist for the show. They didn't. Um, but the other part about the Jadoon, and this is, this is what really busts my bullet though. Um, the- <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, the the Jadoon to me represents such a easy ideological antagonist to the Doctor. They are literally the police. Like he travels in a police box and is ostensibly like law in or justice, quote unquote, in the galaxy. They are the the literal embodiment of the law. You know, they they mm. are constantly out here tracking people down to arrest them. They they genuinely seem to not give a flying fuck about the consequences of what goes on as long as, you know, their version of justice is delivered. Um and I think the contrast between those two things could form a really interesting ongoing mm. sort of push and pull between these two alien forces. And then it's just like, nah, they, we just want to call rhinos for one episode. Yeah. I think that, again, you're probably coming at this from a very 2020 perspective um, because a lot of the points that I think you're alluding to um, definitely didn't enter the, the wider consciousness of, you know, middle-aged white writers such as those behind mm. the show. Um, until very recently, not to say it didn't completely because, you know, Russell T is a gay man, grew up in the eighties, probably knew police brutality as a result of, um, well, that's it. I feel like there'd be like something in his subconscious to kind of address this, you know? Mm. But, uh, you know, it, it's never a secret that the show favors, um, the visuals of action and sci-fi drama, um, over <laughs> some mm. more controversial points. Um, but <laughs> yeah. I do like what you're saying. And it just, it does make me think that the Jadoon, the concept of the Jadoon is basically that they are 
legalized hitmen, you know, because they, Mm. um, they're not an official police force for any nationality or uh, culture or anything. They are just a group of guns that you hire to enact law, but the law that they have is, must be a system that they themselves, like a code really, that they hold themselves to and to make, to justify their actions. Um, almost, you might say, like the doctor. I mean, exactly. Like, it's all there. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, even Mm. if you don't want to get on into the whole, like, real world cop comparison stuff, like, I just think the baseline of these characters makes sense that they would be antagonistic forces to each other. Um, You know, occasionally maybe they might have to work together to bring down a particularly bad, bad guy. Like, there's so much potential there um and especially for a show that i have largely criticized for its constant recycling of the same enemies over and over again um it just bums me out that like you've got such an iconic looking thing with such a fantastic ideological background and you don't make that one of the recurring uh villains like it it feels like it could be a great opportunity for the show to like stamp itself as new and original and it's just like no it it just it just doesn't do it (laughs) Yeah, I don't think the show, it was never, again, it was never expected of them to create new, exciting, recurring villains. It was, oh, you like Daleks? Have a Dalek. Have all the Daleks in the world. (laughs) So you like Daleks, do you? (laughs) Yeah, Um, so that... Uh, yeah, it, it is what it is. It, it do be what it do be. Uh, the Jadun obviously go on to um, and not even play a pivotal role in their most recent story. But that's a conversation <laughs> for another time. Um, what, what do you think of uh, of the Plasmavore? The actual villain of the, this episode. The actual villain of this episode and Reed's performance as the Plasmavore is such a fun Doctor Who thing. You know, she's this like little old lady who's like in the hospital for a, I think, iron or salt deficiency or something like that. And then, you know, when the know-it-all doctor is left alone with her, uh, she's like, oh, well, you see, I'm actually so low on salt because I'm too good at absorbing it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then she drinks his blood and it's like, okay, yeah, fuck it. Why not? Like, this is cheesy. It's camp. She delivers it with just enough, like, sinister energy that you feel creeped out by her. Um, and she's got these, like, two goons who are also black leather clad, but they're made entirely of rubber, I think is the concept. Yeah, they're, like, leather all the way through and they're just animated. Uh, by what? I have no idea. Um, magic. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Space magic. It's it's not important. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I really like the Plasmavore. And, uh, you know, this is a point that you brought up actually before we jumped on to record. So I'll let you expand on it. But this is the season to introduce and kick off uh, with a an alien that's about, you mm. know, shape-shifting and hiding behind human artifice. I think there's a, a lot... There's actually two moments in this episode that have set up the wider uh, themes, but also plot points of this season. Um, one that you have said, which is... Um, so, the concept of the, the Plasmavore itself uh, in this episode isn't just a straight-up vampire. They are a shape-changer, and specifically an internal shape-changer. So, they drink blood to assimilate the biology of that person and appear to be the biology of that person. So if she, if this plasmophore were to drink, you know, Dalek blood, uh, she would look like, uh, she would appear to be Dalek internally. 
Mm. It requires more con- <laughs> explanation than I realized <laughs> I was doing that. <laughs> um, anyway, oh, it's, it's a cool concept, and it's stuff that like I like. I'm I'm a huge fucking nerd. I don't think anybody's um gonna be questioning that. But I think you and I engage with the show in different ways. I, I look for the emotional truths of it, and you're just like, okay, but um, actually, <laughs> mm. I think search for the emotional truths too. Like you know, let's not <laughs> get ahead of ourselves. Um, but anyway, so. That immediately sets up, I think there's even a line in the episode where she says something like, I must appear to be human. And it sets up that she is hiding um, as an alien with a human guise on the top of her. Now, we know that there are some key, pivotal, iconic episodes in this season which are going to be dealing very specifically with this concept of... um, biological identity and using it to hide yourself and create an ulterior to the world um Mm. identity essentially um so i think that it's very uh clever for lack of a better word um that they set up this concept it without pointing a finger at it and being like remember this like it's just yeah. it's just subtly there as part of the DNA of this episode. The other thing, and I only just realized this when I was looking at my notes, um, and I really like it because it's so dumb and so Doctor Who. But at the start of the episode, when Martha, so they're doing, um, they introduce Martha doing her rounds as part of being a medical student at the hospital, and they go to one of the beds, and the doctor's in the bed, and uh, that's how he sort of gets his introduction into the story. Um, and Martha says something to him like, oh, you know, um, would you ha- do you have any, cause she saw him on the street earlier. It's all part of a time travel trick to make her believe that she in time travel. That's at the end of the episode though. Um, and she says to him, you know, oh, well, I saw you in the street this morning. Did you, do you have any twins or do you have a brother? And he says, no, not anymore. And why oh. this is, yeah, <laughs> why oh, okay. this, I love this moment so much is because it's immediately like it's. Okay, it's no secret, season three has the master at the end of it. It's He's the main villain of the of the season. He's the orchestrator behind the events of this season. And I love it so much because it's a Doctor Who theory that they, uh, the Doctor and the master were in fact brothers. And, um, and it's, it's just, they're just aching to tell somebody. And <laughs> so it's just like that they threw that little thing in there to be like, keep an eye out. Um, yeah, listeners at home, I want you to remember this conversation where, uh, Callum puts down a theory that they are brothers when we get up to those episodes and I put down a theory that they're fucking. So that'll be fun. I I just didn't expect you to say that. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, this is a queer show. Remember folks, (laughs) (laughs) but not an incestual one. Um, well, well, <laughs> no, I'm not doing, I'm not having this game with you. Um, yeah. So I think that this, ep- this episode, like it, it's what I will say about the arc of season three is that it is much, it, it's probably actually one of my favorites that Russell T does because it's much better handled. It's so much more integral to the plot of the season overall. And it's not like just dropping in random references to Torchwood. Like, yes. Agreed. Other seasons have done like it. It's in. It's important that you pick up on these things, and um, it shows signs of a maturing show and a, a confident show as well. 
And I think that, you know, this is just, this episode just exemplifies so many good things that are to come more than bad. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. This is definitely a, um, a better introduction than maybe the season will go on to earn. Um, but <laughs> we're, we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves as we like to do. Uh, is there anything else you want to talk about with Smith and Jones or should we grade this one and, uh, take a well, look at our next episode? There is one other thing, which is the, the scene at the very end where Martha is introduced as she steps onto the TARDIS for the first time. Um, because I, there's one moment in it that I, uh, I just want to pick apart just quickly with you. Um, when the doctor, he's introducing Martha to the TARDIS and she has the iconic, it's just, she says the line, you know, it's bigger on the inside. And I love that David Tennant, who we haven't actually talked about at all so far. Um, oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I love that he mounts it behind her back. Uh, like he's heard a million times. I just, I, it, it's really nice. Um, but he's, you know. What I think is important to understand about the this season is um, the circ- the terms under which Martha becomes a companion. Because it's not come and travel in space and time with me. It's have an adventure with me and then I'll take you home. And he yeah. says to her, you know, uh, one trip, you get one trip. And, and then I think he even says like, um, uh, you know, I used to travel with someone named Rose. And then he goes, not that you're replacing her. And she's like, never said I was. Um, but you can immediately be like, what it, what that moment makes me think is that maybe the doctor was very, very conscious of his choice of companion to bring on this time, knowing that he's engendered some kind of attraction in him for her. Um, and has taken on, has unconsciously taken on somebody who he knows is going to fall in love with him is basically what I'm saying. And so he's like, oh, you're not replacing her. Don't go and falling in love with me. But it's like, now Martha Jones, don't you go falling in love with me? <laughs> like, <laughs> Basically, I think that's what he's saying in that moment. Um, and if we were to sort of view the episode, this season, because I think this season puts the doctor in a very like dumbfounded, like he's not aware of the power of the things that he's saying to her and the effect he has over her. And I think mm. that's bullshit. And I think he does know a lot more um, about her yeah. feelings for him. And he's, I, like with Rose, choosing to ignore it rather than acknowledge it. And it is way more toxic this time around. It absolutely is. Yeah. And uh, there is... Uh, <laughs> this ride is... Uh, that particular ride of this season does not slow down at all in the next episode, uh, which I'm conscious of the time that we do yep. need to get yep. to. Um, and we can talk about David Tennant uh, in the next episode discussion as well. Um, so, uh, I guess for now, what are you going to give Smith and Jones? An A, I think. It, it <gasps> deserves a solid A. Okay, okay. I'm going to go with a B plus. I think this is a just a really, really good episode of Doctor Who. I don't know why I said it like that. I love it. Moving right along. The Globe Theatre. Containing the man himself. Shut your big fat mouth! Mr Shakespeare, isn't it? No autographs. Love's Labour's One will never be played. Upon this night, the work is done. Witchcraft. No, no, no! The entire future of the human race. It ends right now in 1599 if we don't stop it. Ah, That's quite good. 
The Shakespeare Code is episode two of season three of Doctor Who, another Charles Palmer episode, this time written by newcomer to the show, Gareth Roberts, a name <coughs> which we will discuss just in a moment. Um, yes. <laughs> let's go to IMDb. The Doctor takes Martha to London in 1599, where William Shakespeare's new play is being used by three witches in an evil plan. So, Martha's first trip in the TARDIS, and where does the Doctor take her? Why, it's only 1599 London. He takes her to see a play by William Shakespeare, Love's Labour's Lost, and who should appear but the man himself? But he says, I've got a new play tomorrow night, Love's Labour's One. The only problem is, that play never existed. There's a mystery afoot. The Doctor and Martha go and visit Shakespeare and discover that three witches have started to orchestrate his life and make him write the play, the famous lost play, in a bid to open a portal using the 14 sides of the Globe Theatre to create a portal in time that will bring their fellow witches uh, into this time period here and now. So the Doctor and Martha have to stop this from happening. To do so, they go to Bedlam to find the original builder of the Globe, and he tells them all about the this, this witches that invaded his mind. And the Doctor names them as the Carrionites, evil crone-like creatures from the dark times of the universe that instead of science and mathematics use words and essentially magic to make things happen. It's their science. So the Doctor and Martha go to the head witch, I guess you could say, uh, house and try and confront her to stop her bid to do what she wants to do. Um, but she cackles and flies away and it's all very witchy. Uh, and then the doctor and Martha race to the globe, say some pretty words, um, to seal the void and go on their merry way. I hope that you get the impression from my plot description that there isn't actually much happening in this episode and it's all just pretty words on the page. Um, And I don't mean that facetiously, I do mean that genuinely in terms of criticism of this episode. Uh, yes, it's not a very plot-heavy episode. It's um, it's just more about the uh, the interim moments between, I guess, the m- the more plotty elements that do happen here. Um, so look, I, I think that's a it's a pretty accurate description of of what goes down in um, the Shakespeare Code, an episode that, on first viewing, I almost fell asleep during, and I really, really did not like at all. And then I went back and I rewatched it this morning, and I was like. Actually, this slaps. Um, <laughs> I, I think that the parts that I don't like are the loud, obnoxious stuff that is very difficult to ignore. But there is so much stuff peppered in between those things um, that I, I get a real kick out of because there is there's a lot of stuff in here that's very like the Doctor Who that I like. It's very heady. It's literally about the like the literal power of words, um, and that's such mm. a, a fun borderline goofy but played totally straight way of handling this villain and i really appreciate it uh, yeah i i completely agree with what you said and i'm also very very glad that you reevaluated the episode because i do think there's a lot to enjoy in this episode but i before we get into that i just want to talk about and i don't want to take up too much time because he doesn't deserve any time uh, at all as far as i'm concerned yes but we just i just want to talk about the writer of this episode so Gareth Roberts, mm. 
he has a history with Doctor Who. He's written a lot of, um, a lot of, he wrote a lot of the missing adventures and new adventures, the, um, interim nineties novels of Doctor Who that kept the show afloat, uh, I guess in, in people's minds. Um, you know, he's, he's a prolific, uh, screenwriter. Um, he wrote a lot of, he wrote a ton of Sarah Jane adventures episodes. Um, he wrote some Doctor Who episodes well into 2014, um, with Peter Capaldi and that's all well and good. But the flip side to this is that he has made some clueless, harmful comments in regards to, um, trans and gender diverse people using a slur and on his Twitter account and refusing to apologize for it. Um, and then this choice response from him, which I can just sum up in a sentence. I don't believe in gender identity. It is impossible for a person to change their biological sex. So (laughs) there's a lot to unpack there with what I've said, but my, my gut feeling is that I don't necessarily want to support, uh, uh, him as the writer and obviously there's a part of my like lizard brain that's like, I can't like this episode at all because it's written by him. That's not a nuanced take on the situation. And obviously there's lots to enjoy in somebody's writing films, whatever, even if that person is a piece of shit. Um, but it would be, um, it wouldn't be good for us not to point it out. I think on a show like ours. Oh yeah, totally. It's not out of the realm of possibility that like a complete asshole can also come up with a, a cool sci-fi story for a 45 minute fucking TV show. Like that's not him being a, a, a filthy turf <laughs> doesn't uh, necessarily mean that he didn't write some decent stories in Doctor Who. And they are stories that we're going to have to talk about. Um, and they're stories that, you know, we did end up enjoying in a vacuum as episodes. Um, but in the same way that we can't not talk about what happened with Freema Adjaman and Martha's casting as the first black companion, uh, especially as a queer show, we really can't not talk about the fact that Gareth Roberts is a fucking turf. Um, and that sucks. It sucks that this is something that we even have to bring up. Um, but you know, it is what it is. He did get fired. Um, so that's good. Mm. Exactly. And, uh, I don't want to comment on the firing because I know that that um, was a particular sore spot for him and unleashed a tirade on his blog. <laughs> um, Good, fuck him. Sorry. Exactly. <laughs> but it, it the point uh, remains that, you know, he's made these comments about transgender diverse people, but he's never written about, as to the best of my knowledge, he's never written about gender identity or trans people in particular um, or made any kind of comment in his work on that front. So yeah, it's not like Frank Herbert writing in a fucking uh, horrible fat gay pedophile as a commentary on how he feels about gay people in June, the book everybody loves. Um, but yeah, so that's good at least. Exactly. Um, the other thing I just want to point out that makes me laugh is, uh, I just quickly checked his Wikipedia page and under personal life, there's just one three word sentence that says Roberts is gay. You can cut this out if you want to, but I, that just makes me... <laughs> that doesn't help anybody, does it? <laughs> Shit. But anyway, um, Gareth Roberts aside, 
I think that the episode that he's written here, uh, The Shakespeare Code, is one that is well worth a revisit if you haven't watched it in a while. Um, I think that there's a lot of good points going for it from a production point of view. As with Smith & Jones, it's a confident production, an expensive one as well. Um, and, you know, the BBC does costume drama like it's their bread and butter. So, obviously, they were going to knock this one out of the park. Um, but there are, there are, like, there are, I'm not talking about this like it's a great script. There are fucking tons of problems with this script, but it's still an enjoyable 45 minutes. Yeah, like, it's not, it's not some sort of, like, revolutionary episode of Doctor Who or anything, um, but the stuff that it gets right is quite interesting and fun. Uh, and then, <clears throat> you know, the stuff that it doesn't get right is... Uh, it, it's just so stupid. <laughs> it's so ham-fisted and, and bad and, and clunky. Um, yeah, I... I'm very... Like, there was a reason why I had such a negative reaction to this episode the first time that I watched it. Um... And I'm glad that that sort of like, you know, walked back a little bit for the second time because I got to, you know, slow down and maybe appreciate the things that do work for me a little bit more. Um, but like, I mean, straight off the bat, something that I don't appreciate here, and I, I don't want to kick off another conversation with, with Martha at the head, so maybe we can leave hmm. that one for a, in a minute. Um, but the, the villain of the week... Uh, they're such a great concept. Um, so they're, they're called the Carrionites... Or, yeah, Carrionites. Mm. They are um, essentially a alien race from like the before times or the old times is the vibe that I get. Um, their power comes from the literal power of words. And so that's why it's so easily mistaken for uh, witchcraft. Um, so that stuff is, is all really interesting. Their true form is these like weird, uh, I don't know, skull bird type things that fly it's a good around. Design. It's a very, very good design. You don't see it for very often, very much at all, because um, the Carrionites in this are depicted as just straight up like <laughs> witches, and it is—it's a stylistic choice that I simply cannot abide by. <laughs> it's so frustrating, isn't it? Because like, it, like you do see the CGI design of them, and it's like this—they've got those little bug eyes and those like weird wispy chin things in there like genuinely terrifying in a very kind of wraith-like way. It's kind of similar to um, the Reapers in that respect. Um, but when we see them as in the, like the human, the three human ones that are, you know, walking around, I mean, they're just out and out witches. And like, <laughs> I do wish they'd been cleverer with the design of them in that respect, because like, if it looks like a witch and it sounds like a witch, it's a witch, no matter how much you say it isn't a witch and that they're actually aliens, because... It, it reminds me of um the in season five the the vampire girls in Venice that they had because like they looked like vampires and they had the big teeth and that was all well and good but then there was a whole other thing going on behind the scenes and they weren't even vampires they were fish people um there was a <laughs> like a completely different story at at there but here. And I agree with you there because, like, I do like the idea of the their science being so ancient and word-based as to appear as magic. But it's like that famous Frank Herbert... not Is it Frank Herbert? Or Herbert C. Clarke line about, like, you know, the... Oh, any yeah. sophisticated uh, so science... So indistinguishable is, from magic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've exactly. Liked, yeah. Um, and I love that stuff. And I love the fact that they also come from the dark times, which is a period of Doctor Who history that I genuinely find fascinating. Um, but... I mean, for fuck's sake, they put one on a broom and have it cackling. Yeah. 
And then, then later have them fly without the aid of a broom. So you're like, why did you need to do that? Yeah. And the answer she is... She has that line where she's like, ah, this broom shall aid my flight. And it's like, what? <laughs> exactly. And then later they have a flight without a broom. So you're like, oh, you, you didn't make that decision for a story-based reason. You did it because you wanted to have a fucking cackling witch in the moon. And so... yeah. This is, I think, the, where the crux of my issues with this episode come from, is that it isn't an episode necessarily concerned with its with the ideas it's putting down, but about putting forward a aesthetic uh, and a, a... Yeah. And a funny we- plot. <laughs> it's such an interesting contrast in the aesthetic of... Um, uh, what is it? The Witchfinders? The Witchfinders, which, yeah, the Jodie Whittaker story. Yeah, the Jodie Whittaker story. Because, like, the witches in that were, like, they were they were obviously depicted as witches, but they were, like, scary witches. They were, they were given some mm. gravitas and they weren't just like, ah! Um, and so, and obviously this is a very different era of the show. You know, it's, it's, what, 2008 or whatever it is. Like, I understand the impulse to go with this kind of, like, more cartoonish version of things. Um, the part where, like, it really starts to irk me, though, is that the performance of the three <sighs> women who are the Carrionites... Um, yeah. Um, there's like a, a young daughter and she is the the lead villain. And for the most part, she doesn't go into the witch makeup. She just stays as like her, her regular person face. Um, but her two mothers are basically always in this like old, horrible witch makeup, which is like, if you've seen any kind of cartoon cliche witch, you know exactly what these women look like. Um, and I find that to be such an odd and distracting thing to put in there. Not only because like, I don't fundamentally vibe with the concept that like ugliness equals evil, which is something Doctor Who does a lot during this time. Um, but even if we put that aside, it obscures the performance in a really unnecessary way. And it makes you focus on like the horrible fake nose and the cackling instead of when they're not that, when they become this genuinely unnerving ancient mm. alien race. The the one good scene that one of those cackly crony types has is when they one of them materializes inside the cell of um, mm, the architect totally. of the globe, and you know the three actors there are doing their best job to sell the threat of the carrionite. But the way that she sort of says, "Oh," and she's laughing through the whole thing, she's like, "Oh, I'll stop your frantic hearts!" Like, I can see something working there in like having in having witch Shakespearean villains giving Shakespearean dialogue, um, but actually going through with the threat and making like a Shakespeare, um, a Shakespearean creation real. Like I see the, yeah, the joy in that, um, you know, and that's a genuine moment of tension, which is also elevated by David Tennant in that scene, naming her, um, which is also a great moment. Yes. Yeah, it, it is. I agree. There's a lot of stuff related to the Carrionites um, that I do find quite and amusing in this episode. Um, the the way that the plot unravels, the way that like a lot of this episode is just them running around a very small square in old school London, like trying to sort of figure out what's going on here, I, I, I quite enjoy. And to your point, that scene involving the architect of the globe mm. and them finding out that, you know, everything about this performance of this lost Shakespearean play, everything leading up to it has been archi- like is the, the product of the interference of these witches in an attempt to open a portal to the rest of their race to come through. 
Um, that stuff is like a really good little neat mystery. Um, mm. And they feel sinister, you know, like they, they rack up a pretty good body count throughout the episode. Uh, at one point they drown a man from the inside and it's done in like a really fun way. Mm. Um, it's just, yeah, like, it's also paired with the the cackling shit, which uh, yeah, I think you and I have established we just don't don't really vibe with. No, and the only thing I would say, just in the episode's defense, is that just like uh, I love witches <laughs> in general. <laughs> I read a lot of witch fiction. I like I just adore. I adore witches, but they are treated as archetypes, and not not even archetypes. They're treated as uh, cliched hackneyed cliches at that in this episode yeah and, and it's that's frustrating the part because oh sorry, sorry I, I was, was gonna say like the archetype <laughs> is not inherently a bad idea here because like you said like the concept of a shakespearean archetype coming to life and being a genuine threat is a good place to start with something i think it's just the execution that they fumble but the problem yeah you're you're absolutely right because it is in the execution where they fumble but also in conception i in that respect because like uh, when shakespeare wrote about witches and I guess this will lead us into discussion of Shakespeare. When Shakespeare wrote about witches, they were uh, architects of doom. And they, mm. you know, in the famous Macbeth play, um, they gave a prophecy that doomed the human characters they encountered. They weren't, they were active players in that puppet-like sense, but they weren't flying around on brooms or, you know, they weren't like cackling over a cauldron. Um, and so... This leads into my other criticism of the episode, which is in the way they treat Shakespeare. And if we're going to look at, like, Shakespeare's actual witches as opposed to the witches we get here, we get we get, we get, get the caricatures here. The same thing, unfortunately, happens with Shakespeare. We don't get a very well-rounded view of Shakespeare, do we? Nah, nah, he's just kind of, he's just a fuckboy. And that in and of itself isn't the problem. Um, it's just not, it's it's not a great performance. It's it's not engagingly written. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I just, I just feel nothing for Shakespeare in this story, which is mm. um, a, a bummer when you contrast it with um, The Unquiet Dead, when you felt everything for, um, for Charles Dickens, you know? Yeah. What And where that episode was so successful was because it was like, it was able to engage with Charles Dickens that, that we know, you know, through his books and through the cultural representations of him, but then was able to um, hold that and still show a side of Shakespeare, uh, oh, sorry, of Dickens, the person. And, and also very particularly tied to a time in his life. Like it was, it was a very, I think, uh, well-researched and well- um, performed uh, character. I mean, Simon Callow, who played Dickens in that episode, is like the preeminent Dickens scholar and known for playing Dickens. So it wasn't exactly a, a hard reach when you've got someone like him on board. Um, here, they are very, very loose with their characterization of Shakespeare. And um, I like that they go with a, a much bawdier, um, younger, sexier version of Shakespeare, because oftentimes depictions of him is this upper crust like, well-to-do scholarly writer. Um, but, you know, he lived in London most of his life. He was a drinker. He he, he was a womanizer. Um, and, you know, wasn't this... He wasn't a, a member of the aristocracy as we know him 
or would think him to be. So I like that they don't give into those kind of cliches, but they go in the opposite direction almost to the extent of like making Shakespeare, I, I don't know, like a, a joke. Is that a fair assumption to make? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I don't know. It just doesn't really work in either direction for me because they don't go far enough to form an actual criticism of the concept of a, you know, wealthy, influential, um, vaguely misogynistic, possibly very racist artist. You know what I mean? Like there's there's no real commentary on that element of him through the lens of him being a fuckboy. Mm. Um, and then at the same time, they also make him a goof which doesn't align with his hero moment at the end of the episode because, I mean, ultimately it's still Doctor Who and Doctor Who is enamoured with the 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 hero worship around a lot of these historical figures. Yeah. And so you can't have it be, oh, he's just a, a permanent fuck-up throughout the episode. He still has to have the big, like, oh, but you're Shakespeare. You've got words on your side. And it's like, mm. yeah, I mean, like, I would have felt something for this ending if you had shown him being good with his words in the episode. But, like, we literally see, we don't see him write anything of his own here. He just steals shit from Martha, basically, and has the play written for him by the witches. Yeah, this, the episode really just doesn't do anything to establish that Shakespeare is a man of genius. It just kind of insists, this is Shakespeare, so he's a genius. And you know it at home, right? You yeah, know Shakespeare. <laughs> you know Shakespeare. He's the guy that you t- learnt in year 12 English and hated. Um, like, so boring. So, well, actually, Shakespeare is, <laughs> you know, a fantastic... Anyway, I'm not going to go into that. Um, I don't want to sound like a dickhead. Um... It, it, it is just, it's frustrating, right? Because he's not there for any particular purpose other than to be there um, in an episode that, re- like, is built around Shakespeare. And, you know, this show has done so well in its depictions of um, uh, historical figures and mythological figures. Like, again, another Mark Gatiss episode. The use of um, Robin Hood in Robert, Robots of Sherwood to contrast mm. with the mythological... Uh, story tell story fairy tale uh, basis of the doctor the concept of the doctor as opposed to the person um, you know it was a great way to sort of introduce that character and you could have done something very similar here because it's all there I'm gonna like a phrase you like to use all the pieces are on the board <laughs> they're just not played correctly um, because you have it, one doctor who's very well who's you know David Tennant is very good with their words very good with the speeches very charismatic on that front and uses it to charm and and hide things from the people around them. And the same thing is happening with the Carrie Knights. The same methods are being used by Shakespeare to charm the people, to charm everyone around him um, and make him into the figure he is. And it's just, it, it's not used (laughs) at all. And the only, the only, opportunities that this script gives to like to engaging with the legacy of Shakespeare is like dropping Shakespeare references at every opportunity and being like we know what we're talking about yeah exactly it doesn't feel like insight into the man it just feels like remember Shakespeare yeah (laughs) um and yeah it's like okay sure whatever it's just yeah it, it just lets the episode down um the if I had one major other complaint about the episode and I, 
I hate that we're doing this already. I know it's only our first episode talking about Martha, but like, mm, Jesus no. Christ. Um, the transition from quippy, intelligent medical student Martha into lovelorn Martha happens like that. It's done. It's already like, we're here, you know, she's yep. still independent at times throughout this episode. She's still witty and she's still a lot of fun because Freema Adjaman is such a naturally charismatic, uh, sort of force in that role. Um, but there are so many moments in this episode that are just all about, well, if Rose was here, she'd be able to see what we need to do, but you're not Rose. And her been like, oh, I suppose I'm not Rose. It's just, it's exhausting. It's the same problem that we talked about with the second half of the, the first episode of the season. So I, I, we don't need to like rehash it again here. Um, I just think it's worth noting that for every good moment with Martha, you take like two steps back because... Again, the show needs somebody to be fawning over the Doctor for some reason. Yeah. Uh, yeah, look, all of the things you said are true and are very present here. But I... I that bed scene that you're probably alluding to um, is so very frustrating because of, like, if you were to view it and take all the context of the romance of their relationship out and just view it as Doctor and his new friend meeting minds and trying to nut out a situation as equals like it would be a kind of cute kind of funny scene but instead it's just awkward and annoying and fucking jk rowling references in it and it's just hasn't aged particularly well is what i'll say um no no it certainly hasn't you want to talk about uh fucking gareth roberts's writing being like oddly prophetic uh the episode ends with a massive harry potter joke and a character's explicitly going good old jk and the irony of that is just (laughs) so good the ironing is delicious (laughs) exactly (laughs) um yeah look but having said all that, I think this is still... Uh, Freema Adjaman is still continuing her great work from the first episode. I love how fresh and how, like I was saying before, how, like, wide-eyed and joyful she is to be, like, travelling through time. I love the scene of her in the in the shape in the globe where she's, like, clapping along and yelling, author, author. Um, <laughs> and just she, she just looks like she's having the f- best fucking time. And I yeah. miss that, you know? Not that it went away necessarily. I've been watching a lot of Peter Davison, Tegan episodes lately, and they're always bitching at each other. So this is just like... Tegan Javanka. Remember that? Um, (laughs) So, She's from Sydney, Australia. Ah, yes. No, she's from Brisbane, actually, but... Ooh. I I mean... (laughs) The fact that I know that. The fact that I know that. Um, It's true. It's true. Um... Um, yeah, the Shakespeare code. <laughs> you know, we spent a lot of time talking about how, all the things that are wrong with this episode, which is funny considering you started by saying how you come around on this episode. Well, this thing, like, I, I enjoy watching it. Like, when I'm sitting there just watching an episode of Doctor Who, like, I had a pretty good time with it. And, for, like, for the reasons that I mentioned, like, the carrier knights are genuinely interesting. The power of words is interesting. The building of the mystery is all a lot of fun and whatnot. Um, it's just that, you know, when we sit down and we kind of hash out our, not our gut reaction, but our, our genuine, like, thoughts and feelings on an episode, um, I am just left with, like, eh, I mean, yeah, it's it's fun to watch, but if it, mm. if you walk away from it just being like, oh, but this was a bit, um, you know, you, you get you get someone, you get an episode that's just very in the middle. 
Yeah. Look, this isn't an episode that requires very much of anyone, really. It's it's um, it's frustrating, I guess, in the in the respect that this is Martha's second episode, so you feel like it should be more about her. But we will get to that next week, I think. Uh, but this is a season. And this segues quite nicely, I think. Um, this is a season that sees David Tennant really step up and take complete centre stage. Um, mm, obviously, Martha yeah. Jones is his companion and Freema Adjaman was joint co-star for the show. But Tennant's, rise, Tennant's star was on the rise and had no sign of, shopping, of stopping at this point. And this season largely is more concerned about the Doctor and Martha is very sidelined as a character and it doesn't help that she only has one season too. But... Mm, yes, totally. I I, I just, yeah, I think David Tennant in these two episodes... Um, what do I think about David Tennant? The Doctor we see in Smith and Jones is very cold and way more eccentric than I think he was in the previous season. And I, I like that there is some... Uh, consistency in terms of like the idea that without a human he gets a bit unhinged traveling around yes i'd agree um, with that but uh, yeah like this idea that he needs to have somebody on board so he takes the new the next available person that comes along um he doesn't always appear like he's having the best of time with martha which i, I guess that was an intentional part of his performance but it is obviously there's a coldness and a cruelty to him in these episodes that, um, you know, shouldn't go uncommented on. No. Yeah. It's weird. Like that bed scene is a really good example of this because like they, they're in bed together. Um, and they're like, you know, facing against each other. They're both curled up on their pillows, like with their faces close enough that they could kiss because of course. Um, and he's like, Oh no, you know, I'm, I'm missing something. It's right in front of my face. And she starts getting all like expectant and she gets that kind of like blushed kind of big eyed look. And you're like, Oh, okay. And then he's just like, ah, if Rose was here, she'd know what it was. And then it's just, it's like you said at the end of the first episode, it's that whole, is this character being written as unaware of the pain that he is causing this woman? And if that is the case, why is that not part of the commentary of the season that you've written here? Um, because it's it's just definitively not. Um, we, we know how this all plays out with, with Martha and... Um, let's say where the bulk of the responsibility for their dynamic ends up getting laid um, does not indicate that I think uh, the the writers behind this season knew what they were doing by sidelining Martha and pocketing her in such a way that she can't not be compared to Rose. Yeah. It's (sighs) the legacy of Rose unfortunately never leaves the show. Um, quite fully. No, no. I think season four integrates it a lot better, um, but that's only because they do actually get to bring Rose back and actually play with that character again. Um, but I mean, that makes its own mistakes that are even bigger. So we're gonna, (laughs) we'll get to that in time. Um, I will say I, David Tennant's performance across these two episodes, I think is good. I think it's solid. I think it's fine. I think it's worth noting, I didn't put anything about him in my notes. Mm. I I think he's just competent at this point in his time. I, I think he's 
like it's his second season, you know, he's, he's sort of thrown off that new nervous energy. Uh, he's a bit more like smooth in a lot of these, um, uh, positions that the show needs to put him in now. Uh, but I think that his best work is yet to come later in the season and then especially in season four. Um, so mm. at this point in the timeline, David Tennant, you're doing fine. Well, he's, he's, um, yeah, a lot of what I have to say about him is tied up in just the the vain hypocrisy kind of written character that he is written to be. And um, a lot of that doesn't pay off until the very, very, very end. And even then, it feels like a reaction to the stuff that they were doing unconsciously during his mm. time as, on the show. Um, so, I don't know. I, I it's it's I, It's annoying to not be able to talk about these episodes, um, with any kind of like concrete, um, evidence to point to who these characters are supposed to be. Um, but yeah, then I also it's a, a failure of the writing for, I mean, no. especially Shakespeare code, I think is very light on characterization for the doctor or for Martha, um, other than a continuation of the more problematic, problematic elements of Smith and Jones. And so, at this point, all we can really do is compare it to the context of the rest of what's going to happen because in and of itself, this episode is not overly concerned with much of this. No. But that's a discussion for another time. <laughs> I think we're running it out of is. time. Indeed. So, um, is there anything else you want to talk about with Shakespeare Code or should we uh, wrap this one up? I do just want to say there are a few choice lines in it that make me laugh. Um, I love the line at the very top where the doctor says that Martha can go home and tell her friends that she met Shakespeare. And she's like, yeah, then I could get sectioned. Like, <laughs> oh, I just love her so much. The When she tries to do Elizabethan um, dialogue and she's like, oh, verily, forsooth, egads. You know, it's that kind of, <laughs> <laughs> it's that kind of fun traveling in time and knowing you're traveling in time-ness that I appreciate about this episode, even though they do indulge in it and make, you know, Shakespeare a caricature. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's good. I also really like the line and the way David Tennant delivers the line, uh, when Martha's sort of rationalizing about the witches and she's like, you know, it's all tied to you, Shakespeare, because you've written about witches. And he goes, have I? And David Tennant just goes, not, <laughs> not, not, not yet. <laughs> yeah, I, I did really appreciate that. His his comedic timing in the role has improved dramatically. Uh, it, he, he's very comfortable in the jokes now. Yeah, I, I completely agree. A, a, a very confident, confident performance. Yes, yes, um, I, I agree. But this episode is just got so many flaws in it that stop you from enjoying it on a, on more, on a more deeper level. So... Yeah. Uh, it's 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 probably just like a B minus, probably deserves a C plus, but a B minus because I did enjoy watching it. Yeah, I'm gonna go with exactly the same. My mind says a C plus, but my heart says a B minus. Um, yeah. And I'm gonna try and balance the two out a bit more this season because I feel like I was a little bit harsh on season two. Um, but <laughs> that's a <laughs> that is a problem we'll address later. Um, yeah, I, I guess that's pretty much it for this week. Uh, in two weeks' time, we're going to be back with um, just a single episode next time because we have a just a mammoth one to talk about. It's a corker. I fucking adore 
gridlock. And I cannot wait to share our thoughts on it with you. Yeah. It's going to be great. It's going to be wonderful. Um, as always, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, if you would like to have your thoughts, feelings, or questions read on the show, you can email us at twoheartspodcast at gmail.com. That's two, the word two. Alternatively, if social media is more your speed, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at twoheartspod, the number two. And I have been Callum, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Theatra Callum. You know, somebody messaged me the other day and said that they thought that my um, my handle, because they just sort of glimpsed it and weren't like really pop- properly paying attention. They thought it said the art Callum. <laughs> like, like the art, the. Um, yeah. <laughs> and that made me laugh. Great. Great. Um, I often get uh, remarks on my handle because people say, oh my God, I just want more James. Um, as always, I have been James. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at OMG More James. Uh, we will see you folks in two weeks time for Gridlock. Until then, stay safe, uh, take care of each other, be happy, be kind, and um, yeah, just have a good one. Bye. Oi!